Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. After an astonishing year on markets, it's a good time to take a breath and think about where we go from here. Roger Montgomery is the Chief Investment Officer and founder of Montgomery Investment Management, as well as being one of our favourite guests. And he's kindly agreed today to give us his thoughts about this crazy year that we've had and the one that's ahead of us, which is much more important. Roger, thanks so much for joining me. Great to be with you, Gemma. Thanks for having me on again. Oh, absolute pleasure. So, Roger, tell us about how you and your team have managed through 2020. Well, we had an insight at the start of the year um, that uh, the coronavirus uh, was going to be a serious issue. Uh, and that came from some work that our small caps team had started tracking um not the death rate and infection rates so much, but the testing rates. And what we discovered was that in February, when um, the virus had jumped from China to South Korea and then to Italy, um, we discovered that the US was testing. And now remember, the US has a population of about 335 million people. Um, They were testing in January about 40 people per day. And in February, they'd ramped that up to uh, 92 people per day on average. Uh, And so that gave us some confidence that by the time the virus uh, reached the United States and they ramped up testing to properly expose the level of infection, they would be shocked by that level of infection. And in fact, it subsequently turned out, for example, in in New York, 50% of people being tested were infected um, and we knew that we had a real pandemic on our hands and the market would react negatively to that. Uh, And so in our small companies fund, we moved to about 40% cash and in our all cap funds, we moved to more than 30% cash, uh, which certainly helped to um, mitigate some of the downside uh, as the market sold off. And then... um, By coincidence, more than anything else, um, about a day after the bottom in March, uh, the small companies fund moved back to about 10% cash. So invested about 30% of the fund uh, at that time. And um, over the remainder of the next couple of quarters, the all cap funds um, headed towards being fully invested as well. And so we now sit sit, uh, where we're about we're in the in the single digits in terms of the amount of cash that we've got, uh, and uh, and very pleased because we think the outlook um, is quite promising for the next twelve months. That's an amazing story. People like to say you can't time the markets, but you guys have had a had a killer year on the timing front. That's amazing. Yeah, it's um, not something I can claim to be able to repeat regularly, but um, you know, it was just it was just the rest of the world was looking at infection rates and death rates and obviously being shocked by that but weren't anticipating that or or, or believed that the US was fine but the reason they were fine is they simply weren't testing. I remember reading the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald you know quite some time ago probably was March where they were predicting 200,000 deaths in the US Mm. and as you say you know the number of people in the US is is pretty sizable 335 million 200,000 deaths 
sounds very dramatic, but I remember being absolutely horrified by that number going, that is, that's extraordinary, even mm. if you take all-cause mortality into consideration, all these things. And yet they've surpassed that number by 50% and it doesn't yep. seem to be a huge issue. Well, and, and and you know, we remember the tragedy that was the Twin Towers and that was roughly 2,900 people that died. And in the US today, there's more than 3,000 people um, dying every day um, from the virus. So, and their, their hospitals are at or near capacity. Uh, and so the conditions there could get a lot worse before they get better, but they will get better. The vaccine is being distributed. And in Australia, we're fortunate that we've got, you know, a combination of conditions, including zero community transmission, low interest rates, um, accommodative fiscal policy and beautiful summer months. So we have a foretaste of what the US and the Northern Hemisphere will probably experience ne next summer. So they've got optimism around the vaccine, but they still have fear about the virus. We have the vaccine coming and no fear about the virus. So I think we're, we're kind of, a, for investors in Australia, we can see what the rest of the world is going to enjoy. And so I'm quite optimistic um, about the performance of the market next year. I love that. And I think people will love to hear that as you face into 2021. A lot of people will be really happy to put 2020 behind them. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's, God, you forget how time flies. You know, at the end of 2019, at the beginning of this year was pretty brutal, right? We had the bushfires, which were horrific. Yes. Um, you know, Australia was not not looking beautiful um you know sydney was covered in ash uh and you know we were all hoping we could put 2019 behind us now people are hoping we can put 2020 behind us and uh, and look forward to something much better and your optimism i think will make people feel fabulous so what are the things that you're excited about what do you think is looking positive well we will see um for example we'll see a boom in travel we'll see a boom in entertainment um we'll see a boom in weddings, I mean, you think about all the weddings that were postponed in 2020, they'll, they'll all be happening in 2021 plus the 2021 weddings. So, um, you know, wedding planners are going to enjoy great times. There's going to be a lot more travel. There'll be, there'll, there'll just be booms in a whole bunch of industries and, um, and it may surprise on the upside. And so we're going to see a return to normality, but with something like 15 or 20% greater money supply around the world as well. So if you look at Germany, you know, from Germany, the UK, Australia, the US, um, Canada, you've got between 8 and 25% greater money supply than a year ago. Uh, and when credit conditions are relaxed and there's more money in the system, what tends to happen is asset prices go up. We're seeing that in the property market now and you know, the biggest driver of property in the short and medium term is simply uh, access to credit. Uh, if the banks turn off uh, lending, house prices go down. If they turn on lending, house prices go up. And the government is uh, proposing or it proposed in September to, um, to uh, remove or lo loosen some of the restrictive aspe aspects of the responsible lending uh, legislation in the Credit Act. Uh, and so um, that means that there'll be more there'll be easier credit. Banks have been fearful of lending. They've required large deposits. That won't be the case next year. And with interest rates very, very low, and I note that NAB has a four-year fixed rate of 1.98% at the moment. You know, it's very cheap money. 
and with easier access to credit, I think you're going to see house prices go up as well quite a bit. And so I'm very optimistic about next year for those reasons. That's really interesting. When we were talking to uh, to Alan Oster recently, who's NAB's chief economist, and uh, it's interesting to remind people that banks have incredibly good quality data on house prices and households and businesses, mm. particularly for now, because we are a business bank primarily. Um, yeah, we've got all of that data about what people are doing and also their forward intentions. Uh, and he felt exactly the same way about house prices. One of the things, uh, and question without notice, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. He was of the view that we would see uh, a lot of growth in regional areas and he felt, uh, and this is based on data rather than purely an intuition, that there will be a return to offices, but it won't be anything like the nine to five, five days a week that we've been used to. And that because people can work from home and they can work from regional areas and beautiful parts of Australia and the world, they'll do that. Do you see that kind of uh, disaggregation from the cities happening? No. Um, I have observed enough of these kinds of shocks to know that as soon as humans can get back to doing the thing that they always did, um, they will. And um, there's been so many crises that have prompted um, commentators to suggest that we'll change the way we work, we'll change the way we live, we'll change the way we commute, and yet we keep doing what we've always done and we follow the path of least resistance. What I believe will happen is that bosses around Australia who really care about the culture of their businesses want people to be under one roof. And uh, if next year they say, right, you, you go to the pub on Friday, you go to the beach on Saturday, you go to church on Sunday, you can come to work on Monday. And uh, there won't be the, the you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's led by workers, it might be true that uh, there'll be some, uh, there'll be some migration to regional areas where, where workers have a say, but, uh, you know, if management gets their way and the, many of them remember many of these businesses have long-term leases for large areas large office spaces um, they'll want to fill those with people again and get people back to the office um, so so I have a different view to Alan um, and I think people people bounce back um, by going back to what they know I remember when we were in the hardest part of lockdown I was asked by um, ABC radio whether or not you know this was going to transform the way we worked uh, and, you know, people were enjoying working from home. Uh, and my response was just give it six months and see how much they enjoy working from home after six months. They can't wait to get back to the office. And so I do believe uh, there might be some leakage, but the majority of people will return to cities and they'll return to their offices. I think a few people will think that's a buying opportunity. <laughs> You've got some part of the market believing that office uh, and uh, and central CBD property is about to get absolutely hammered, even more so than it has been, and that region is yeah. about to boom. Others might feel another way. The, the um, problem is the problem with regional areas, of course, is that you know the the the, the idea of working remotely um, appeals initially, but then you know the, the romance fades, and and people do we are. We are built for relationships and so we really need to be in the presence of others and I think that's what will drive ultimately people back to working together. There was an interesting comment about that. There was a guy who wrote a very long thread on Twitter that's gone sort of viral about 
about why people will no longer work the way they've been working. So the opposite mm. of your argument that yeah. people will want to be uh, disaggregated to be able to work their own hours and in their own space and that yeah. it's critical for businesses to be able to facilitate that. And one of the comments he made was that everyone's going to move to all these beautiful regional areas and so therefore those regional areas will have to build the appropriate re- infrastructure. Which one they don't of, have. One of which was schools. Yeah. You're like, oh, they don't take long to build. (laughs) It's not the building of them, it's the staffing of them and the management of them that's the issue. You know, you've got about 56 government departments that uh, have to approve it and, you know, it takes forever. Yeah, Um, it it was quite fascinating to me. I'm like, that is the kind of thing that takes a decade, right? My son's school um, went from 400 children to 1,000 children in less than 10 years as a result Mm. of urban planning and no one thought to make the school any bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something happens in Chatswood in the you know in, in inner Sydney. So, no. so, so, but what is interesting from a house price perspective, you know, the the regional areas seem to be doing very well at the moment. But I think that's not because of um, a, a net migration of workers from cities. I think what's actually happening is there's about three hundred eighty five thousand expats that want to return to uh, Australia. Uh, and I think they're they're more liquid, and so they're buying holiday homes in these areas. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why these properties are being um, property prices are being driven up in in regional areas. Uh, it's people looking for the the second home rather than the uh, rather than a place to live. That's a really interesting one because the next question I was going to ask you is, you know, the growth that you're forecasting is really exciting for people, but. The issue of migration, so immigration has been such an enormous driver of not just house prices but economic activity in Australia. Are yeah. you concerned about that flattening out for a little while or do you think it's going not to come roaring back? No, it will come back. And, uh, you know, once these vaccines are distributed, there'll be no reason for governments to knock people back from migrating to Australia and so, uh, as well as other countries. And so um, that, migra- that migration will return. It's really, I mentioned earlier that, the driver of um, house prices in the in residential prices in um, the short and medium term is credit availability or credit access, uh, but in the long term it is definitely uh, migration, and uh, migration will come back. You know this is a temporary blip, and uh, I, and I think the blip has been offset, and we haven't seen property prices go down. The blip has been offset by those expats wanting to return home. Yeah, that's true. I um. I do think it'll be terribly interesting to see how this plays out. But I also think, um, and it's purely intuitive, but Australia is probably a very attractive place to come to if you've been through any other countries uh, over the last year. You imagine going to, I mean, Melbourne might have been maybe not the most attractive place in terms of the lockdown, but... I've never, I've, I've, I grew up in Melbourne. I'm, I live in Sydney now. <laughs> <laughs> You've, you're grateful you live here. Um, but, you know, it, it was awful for the people in Melbourne, but the experience of Australia as a whole over the last 12 months relative to New York or London, London's going back into horrible lockdowns and so on, seems quite... Yeah, and Germany as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and that's the that's where the opportunity lies, right? So so um, I mean, let's let's just put aside quality, value, all of the fundamentals of investing in the stock market for a moment. If you just think, if you just think in terms of sentiment, you've got a lot of these northern hemisphere countries in the deepest, darkest part of their winter, and they've got um, infections exploding. Uh, they're returning to lockdown while being in second or third um, waves of the pandemic. 
So while the vaccine is coming and there's hope around that, you know, they're not thinking optimistically about the future. But in Australia, as we record this podcast, it's it, you know we're, we're heading towards Christmas, it's summer, the weather's fine, people are going out. Um, there's no community infection, and that's what, as I said earlier, that's what the rest, that's what the northern hemisphere has to look forward to. And, and I think when they experience that, there'll be some optimism that will flow through to the stock market, and that will drive. And if that does occur, that will drive our market even higher than where it is today. So that's a great segue into what I do want to ask you about. You're able to invest in, I'm going to say, most jurisdictions. You'll tell me if yep. I'm wrong about that around the world. You. you yep not terribly constrained about where you can go. No. What are you what are you most excited about? Where do you where are you looking? Well actually there's a couple of themes that are interesting and um and you can invest in them domestically um either in all caps or small caps or you can invest uh internationally. But one of those themes um that I'm I'm pretty excited about is the idea that the very, very low interest rates, which central banks have confirmed are here to stay for quite some time, and you might remember Philip Lowe earlier in the year, uh, our um, Reserve Bank Governor, uh, said that he's not going to lift short-term rates until inflation is sustainably in the um, sustainably in the uh, target band for inflation, which is between two and three percent. So, a couple of things about that. Normally, uh, you know, rates of well, rates in the past have gone up when inflation expectations have reached that level. Uh, and here he's saying, no, we're going to ignore expectations. It's actual inflation and it has to be in that band for a sustained period of time. So, so rates are going to stay low for quite a while. If you think about that and the implications of that, it means that this, you know, what we call financial repression is going to be around for a while. So investors, financial repression is the idea that governments are quite happy with low interest rates because when they borrow a lot of money, it's cheaper for them to pay it off. Um, but the private sector obviously suffers because there's no, uh, there's no income being earned on savings. So what happens is investors migrate out of savings into other assets. And that's been going on now for quite some time. In fact, interest rates have been declining for 37 years. But now that they're at the zero bound, now they're at the, you know, virtually zero, um, if not in some cases negative, what happens is that pension funds um, who want to deliver their uh, pension clients a return are satisfied, particularly international pension funds where rates have been zero for longer, they're satisfied in, in giving delivering a return of maybe 2 or 3% to their investors. And whereas when we're pricing companies or securities here in Australia that have a reliable annuity-style income stream, we might price them on 4 or 45 or 5% and, you know, to, a, to, a, to adjust for the risk of being in the stock market. So these pension funds are happy with a much lower return and so they're prepared to pay much higher prices for the same assets that we've priced at a lower level. Uh, and so consequently, um, I think there'll be a lot of mergers and acquisitions activity next year by international pension funds, like, for example, the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund, just to pick one out of the air, and they will uh, they will make bid, they will uh, announce bids for 
uh, companies that produce these annuity style incomes at, at vastly higher prices than what we're used to paying. So, so we think investors would do well to have some insurance against that in their portfolio by owning stocks that produce those annuity style incomes. Um, so another, another, uh, I guess, two points of evidence uh, for that argument, Telstra has announced the spinning off of its towers uh, and that's because they're an, you know they've, they've got a, a stable they, they can generate a stable income uh, and so by spinning them off it's likely they'll be they'll be bid by uh, somebody else will pay a much higher price and so that'll be reflected in the value for Telstra shareholders which isn't being that value isn't being reflected when it's all amalgamated into one entity. Uh, another one, another example is the New South Wales government is talking about uh, potentially selling uh, the taxation revenue streams that come from gambling, and uh, you know that again, these these sorts of announcements or these sorts of discussions are occurring because there is an awareness that there is massive demand from e for income from large overseas pension funds, uh, and so by providing those style those styles of uh, income streams they can get a lot of money for them when interest rates are very, very low. So the summary of all of that is that uh, investors should really look for businesses that are able to generate steady, stable income streams because there might be a lot of interest in them by these pension funds next year. That's a really interesting one. And it's not one that, um, that we've talked about on this podcast or that most of our investors are thinking about right now. So that is exciting. It's always lovely for people to, uh, to think about a new idea. Any long-term trends you think have been forgotten in all the excitement? Yeah, I think I think what's happened is you might remember during the, the pandemic, during the, the depths of our lockdowns here, what we saw was we saw massive share price increases for e-commerce companies. So people were working from home. That means their boss wasn't watching over their shoulders so they could surf the internet and go shopping online. And so e-commerce uh, you know, went through the roof. Uh, and so companies like Kogan and Temple and Webster and so on, they did really well. And companies like Flight Centre, for example, um, they... Uh, they or corporate travel management, Webjet, they did obviously very, very poorly because travel had was basically banned. And um, but then what we saw in November was we saw that flip. We saw the companies uh, that were benefiting during the lockdown uh, sold off. So Kogan had, had fell by about a third. Flight Centre jumped by about a quarter in November, and so we saw that switch. What's actually happened, though, is during that, what else, what has also been sold off during that period are the, are the cloud computing companies, so the likes of NextDC and Macquarie Telecoms and Megaport. These businesses are structural growers. They're, they're, they, they're, they saw their growth accelerate during the lockdowns, but that growth still has a long runway ahead of it because penetration, uh, enterprise-level penetration of the cloud amongst uh, companies is uh, is really only sort of at 25%. It's where mobile phones, smartphones were 10 years ago or where laptops were maybe 18 or 20 years ago. So there's there's a huge growth still ahead uh, for, uh, for cloud computing and its penetration into uh, commerce, uh, you know, any, any business. And the benefit, of course, for cloud is that it used to be that 
used to be that if you're a big company, you could afford an internal IT room. You know, you have all your racks and all your servers in there. You'd have an IT company in there maintaining it all or IT crew in your own IT crew maintaining it all. Um, And so the bigger you were, that, that became an advantage. You could provide a better online experience and all of that. But the cloud now has really um, democratised that IT uh, advantage. And so now being big and having high overheads is a disadvantage and small companies are, are benefiting, able to deliver a similar experience to uh, a big company simply because they can outsource the provision of that IT maintenance. And obviously the unit economics of delivering uh, online changes so, for example, uh, take Vivendi uh, in France uh, or Time Warner, you know, the big music labels, um, they, uh, you know, they deliver, uh, they used to deliver music in a physical format. You had to buy a CD. They had to manufacture that CD. They had to print the artwork. They had to burn the CD. They had to put it in a plastic container, put it on a pallet, ship it all around the world, and now they just upload it to the cloud with the press of a button. And so the unit economics become really impressive as well. So the cloud trend is not going away. Business is demanding it. So there's a demand side element to it. And, uh, you know, I think businesses like Macquarie Telecom, you know, they'll increase the amount of uh, rent that they're receiving for providing their service over time as they develop their data centres and fill them with tenants. And uh, and that's going to be that, and we, that sort of ties in with the last theme, that they will ultimately be delivering a reliable steady income stream uh, that somebody else I think will demand and so they're the sorts of that's a sort of theme that I think's been lost or forgotten in November because they were seen as just another beneficiary of lockdown and that's ending but I think the long-term trends are in place so that's one that's been forgotten. I like that a lot Um, and you're absolutely right if I look at our data um, the the travel stocks have been super popular or no trade all year, frankly. Yeah, um, yeah. So ever since ever since they got sold off in March, people have been buying them really enthusiastically. So Webjet, Flight Centre and Qantas have all been in our top 10 stocks, which for any other period would be unheard of. Um, and not the things you're talking about. So everyone's been enjoying the sort of short-term bump and, uh, and perhaps not thinking so much about some of the longer-term opportunities. So exciting to be talking about those. Last question for you, though, because it's always important and it's been such an extraordinary year, right? To have the market fall 30% in three weeks is it's new for all of us. Yes. And, uh, and then to have it back up, you know, nearly 50%. Uh, in the space of six months, you know, I think we had a technical bear market and a technical bull market at the same time at one point <laughs> this year. It's been amazing. Uh, in that, there comes a fair bit of risk, though, right? A lot's been happening that can be hard to to unpick. Is there anything that you think investors should be being wary of at this particular point in time? Um, the only thing I'd say, and I think it's a longer term issue. It's not a. I don't think it's an issue for next year, but as the you know, we think about no one's really asking how does all this stimulus get, how is it pulled back? How is it withdrawn? Um, nobody's thinking about how do we normalise interest rates? No one's wondering how do we pay down our debt? No one's asking what happens if creditor nations stop lending to debtor nations um, as interest rates go back up if they do. Uh, those questions aren't on anyone's mind at the moment, so it's not a concern of the market. It's not something that I think will become a concern next year. But longer term, I think once that narrative emerges, once you see more and more people starting to be concerned about you know, withdrawing from this sort of 
COVID stimulus, I think that's going to be that's going to be a potential for more volatility, which of course will just be temporary, and uh, and you'll use that as an opportunity to add to holdings of really great companies when they're thrown out. So, but I do think that will that will be something that delivers more volatility. Uh, again, let me just emphasise: I don't think it's an issue for twenty one. Um, I think it will be an issue for for years beyond that. I've been worried about that since 2009. Um, (laughs) And all I have learned is it's a silly thing to worry about, Um, certainly from the perspective of what's been going on this year. Roger, you and your team produce an amazing wealth of insights. You're really responsive and timely with the content you produce. It's very, very accessible for investors and for people who are interested. How do people keep up to date with your thoughts and what you're working on? Thanks for pointing that out. I actually think we we led the, um, the the trend of fund managers blogging and and writing commentary, and we had probably one of the first really really well travelled um, uh, blogs on the internet in Australia. And so, if, and we still run that. It's been going now for ten or eleven years, and we post two articles a day and a video once a week, uh, and that's at rogermontgomery.com. It's a, it's. For- Really fantastic. So for anyone who hasn't uh, had an opportunity to have a look at it, I recommend it highly um, and we'll certainly be getting you more on Trade next year. We're looking forward to it. Looking we can be in front of people again. It'll be lovely. Roger Montgomery from Montgomery Investment Management, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Gemma. Delighted to be talking with you again. Thank you so much for listening. Also, uh, we look forward to a wonderful 2021 with you. We love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions and ideas for topics. Please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.